Look, Simon, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, first of all, I just kind of want to get a bit of a bit of an idea as to uh, who you are, what you do. I think this is the first time we've officially spoke for for more than around ten minutes. Um, mm-hmm. So it'd be great just to understand a little bit about your career, what you do now, and and why open banking is at the, is at the heart of you. It seems to be on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's very kind. So it, my, my career is is really. Oh, relatively simple as well. I was uh, 20 odd years in the cooperative bank. Um, I began there, I'm old enough to remember year 2000. So I worked in digital banking when it was modems and when it was PCs and when it was corporate banking. Because I was in the co-op bank, it was very small. So you didn't have one job, you had seven. So I went from doing back sanctions to credit applications for backs to transmissions to faster payments to converting uh, with a guy called Paul Stevenson, a very good friend of mine, um, 850 odd customers from a DOS version of PC banking through to a Windows version. And then what happened was I was involved in the winning of one piece of business in uh, the cooperative bank and it brought my, my attention to agency and clearing banking. So I've spent my entire life working in high volume transactional banking corporates um, from merchant acquiring with customer spending four and five billion pounds a year right through to purchasing card through to lodge cards, through to faster payments, through to digital banking, through to file transfers, really anything that a corporate ever needed. The only thing I've never done in banking on that side is I've never done any retail banking whatsoever, uh, which is quite strange. When the co-op went through its troubles, I um, went to join a small fintech, and that's where open banking came across my um, path. I met a guy called Matt Glover, and Matt said one sentence to me, which I've written down on a piece of paper by the desk, and it was about what the impact of open banking will be. This was in 2015. And I looked at this and thought, I've waited for this my whole life. Corporates have been served by bespoke relationships and by bespoke connectivity forever. And the SME and the retail customer never has been. Open banking brought that down to that level. And so worked in a company, took them through open banking accreditation. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be approached by the open banking implementation entity to try and grow their corporate space, to try and you know get it out into industry a bit more and make it a bit more consumable. I speak fluent corporate banking. And I joined OBIE. And this journey really started there because I was lucky enough to work with HMRC. Um, really fortunate to still be involved with them in in certain capacities. I'm really proud of that as well. And and really then expanded across different sectors, different industries. Talking about OB, talking about what it does. I have very very little interest in how it does it. I think that the people who are going to use it, we we kill them in acronyms and don't. Latterly went to Pay UK and uh, I worked on something for SMEs, which is about bulk payments, which will be released and standardised in October. But through all this time, I always wanted to get back into the commercial space. I'm going to miss it. I met a guy called Darren Morford and, and Rian Garner. And there was a lot of open banking companies that I was fortunate enough were, were wanting to talk to me. But I do struggle a little bit with how the TPP side makes money in isolation. So we do bank software. Our interest is in, you know, the servers that provide and the architects that provide bank connectivity. And I think it's, uh, to just to summarise the end of it, I'm here now and it's great. Open banking is the biggest change I will see in banking in my lifetime because it's quite ubiquitous. You know, the last great leap forward in banking was the ATM. And I think that was in 1968 in New York. Uh, and I personally believe that banking has been aggregated. You know, no longer do you get the bank you're giving, you get the bank you want. And that's how I'd sum up my uh, career to this day. And now I'm very noisy about it, which is very kind of you to know. So it's probably why I'm sat here. But thank you, George. No, and, and, and that's it. You know, I think from 
from a social media perspective like LinkedIn, it's important to be vocal. I think the way that people consume, engage and consume content these days is very different than how they used to, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and this goes from a commercial perspective, from a sales element, you know, I think very, very different around my sales engagement now. And I think from, from a LinkedIn perspective, it very much comes from there. But back to the open banking piece, do you think that open banking is still misunderstood? And do you think it's, there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of education needed around the whole topic? Really don't know where the desire of the industry to educate people about something they never need to understand comes from. Um, if we look at cards, people don't know what EMV is. Uh, when I go and swipe my card and go and use it, I don't particularly care what the authentication is. I care that the retailer will take it as well. I think the biggest piece of education needs to be the people that will distribute the products. I've always felt that open banking is a corporate-led initiative. It's people of high-volume populations that will get the most benefit from it. The proof in the pudding that is if we look at Sage and QuickBooks and Zero, the way that their accounts are shared now and their statements are received, you know, the biggest, best-kept secret we've got in this industry. And then we look at HMRC, we look at just giving none of them sat there and said open banking they said pay by bank i actually got quite frustrated when people say oh, we need to tell them what it is well no we don't we, we don't need to tell people what a cbt gearbox is either in a motorbike or we need, don't need to tell them what a limited slip differential is in a car but we, we there seems to be an open banking this desire to educate people about the nuances you need to know the person that gives it you you trust them Agreed. that's the crucial point we bandy around the word trust but trust should be between buyer and seller and the buyer is the consumer, the seller is the corporate delivering the goods or the one that's with it. There's a really tough conversation here and it won't make me very popular. <laughs> the order was to create competition in the retail space. And, you know, there was a lot of talk in PSD2 about replacing cards. Yeah, we don't pay for a mortgage on a credit card and we don't make, you know, car payments via cash. So we have particular instruments, whereas in PSD2 and open banking, we've we seen people saying blanket oil solve everything. It doesn't, specialised. But no, the, the big thing for me, I think, is, is we need to educate the distributors of the product and they need to ensure that trust exists between them and the buyer. Because I think we have, um, you know, we've discussed internally, obviously we've got a pay by bank product. And I think there's a lot of yep. focus around what do we call it? You know, from an even from a keyword perspective, what are people searching in Google when they want to understand? Are they searching instant bank transfers? Because as far as payment people are concerned, that's not what we would class as open banking, or what we would class as pay by bank. Do we call it account to account payments? You know, there's so many things that I think you can call it. And like you said, I think we're potentially overcomplicating the process, and equally what we're trying to describe. But the last great advance in a payment method was PayPal. Mm. And if you look at the adoption of PayPal when Elon Musk went out and spent that money as well with Avi, uh, they gave $20 for every sign-up. Yeah. And I think the first, I might be wrong, I think the first retailer to actually take it instead of it being peer-to-peer -peer payments was Boots. I, I might be wrong. Um, I'm very, very happy to be wrong. But it was a long time before it went from being a peer-to-peer -peer network for it to being yeah, a method of acquiring, a method of taking payments from customers. And, you know, they're to do a lot of work on reconciliation. And now they're a massive merchant funder. You know, they've got a completely different secondary market now that goes and does it. We, we, I do have a bit of frustration that we seem to think that this open banking thing should work in three weeks. How long have cards been around? I mean, you're in the business. What is it, 52 years? Uh, we're around that. Zip-tap mm -hmm. machines and triplicates. And mm -hmm. then we didn't get chip and pin until whatever it was, 2006. Uh, yep. We get, and I find it amazing that we want this incredible progress without making the steps of adoption of looking at the bell curve of the early adopters and looking what we've got. There's a, 
there's a really, really interesting dichotomy there about it. I personally believe it's whatever the dialogue that person needs. So, for instance, you bought your house, George, I'm sure you're in Kensington or a lovely place like that as well. Your solicitor probably called the payment a TT, a telegraphic transfer. Now, those payments have not been called TT since about 1986, but they still use the name. Um, you, you know, if you're in a bank and you talk about the lending of a customer, you call it a connection. And we, we, we agonize about terminology to unify it, whereas actually we should be doing it, that the, the industry determines what the dialogue is. Well, Paybo Bank seems to be being adopted, um, really does. It seems to be getting quite popular and I quite like it. Uh, it, it, it does what it says in the tin, pay by bank. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It's a, I think the market determines it, not us. I, I think I massively agree with that. I think the market does determine what it is. And I think, you know, from, from our pers- or from my perspective, the conversations that I'm having and what seems to be interesting is, you know, we we discussed prior to this podcast that we wanted to cover the gaps between open banking and card payments. And I think one of the things that strikes me from a let's think about an online consumer journey perspective you know how long do we think it's going to be before open banking becomes as slick as buying something online as apple pay do we ever think it's going to get to that level you know how long are we away from that i know i'm jumping way ahead of the steps here but from a consumer's perspective i've i see open banking as more of a merchant driven practice than it is a consumer it's more sticky it's longer you know, there are certain, I don't know, there are certain fraud elements to it. But again, Apple Pay is biometric. So is, a, so is our pay by bank product. So how long are we going to take before it actually catches up with consumers wanting to pay as fast as possible? What's your thoughts on that anyway? The dog's finished barking, do apologize. <laughs> so I think there's a really interesting point about Apple Pay and about Amazon, about all those things as well. And there's one big word that they all miss, liability. Who holds the baby if it goes wrong? And Apple hold the baby. So they, they're a back-to-back merchant. You know, the way that Apple Pay works is, well, you don't put your PIN number and they go and do it. And there's a certain element there that they have confirmed who you are because they've already got the device. They had a population and they basically maximize their population to go and deliver that and to go and take a product to market as well. They're a cartel, if you many ways. I mean, I don't know how interested you are in the App Store, but the iPhone isn't the crucial part of an I, uh, Apple. The, the App Store is. And when we look at what they've done there, they've exposed it. Uh, Liability is enormous. We can go back to the contactless revolution of McDonald's and TFL, absolute poppycock, a poppycock. Uh, When the liability shifted, contactless grew um, because when the merchant stood the liability of the contactless payments, it it didn't have any marketplace because nobody in the right mind was going to do it. You're in business to get paid. So what do I think makes it work? It's quite a, a brutal statement, and I've probably criticised by a lot of my peers for it. I don't think it works in face-to-face payments yet. I think it works where there's a gap between the fulfilment of goods and the purchase. So if you are paying for something, so if you have a Next catalogue, you're, you're fortunate enough to shop at Next as well. The online checkout, if you want the speedy delivered efforts, but it's challenging because the reconciliation side. But if you're paying your statement off the end of the month, absolutely perfect. You know, just ideal. If you're topping up your ISA, and at the moment, the you know Huggies Lansdowne or AJ Bell or any of those good folk that operate those things, they're paying big debit card fees. They've got the risk of charge back. They've got other problems with it. Open banking is perfect. But in Costa in the morning when I've just come off the tube and there's 14 people in the queue in front of me and it's 36 seconds to go and do the entire process. I hear people talking about just that process. Um, I, I, I personally don't think we're there yet. The key to that is two things. Um, the first is liability. And by liability, I don't mean refunds. I don't mean um, uh, anything to do with the 
the passive bit where who, who's going to underwrite it? Who's going to say what happens when it goes wrong if you got a quick one? And that leads straight on to probably the greatest advantage of cards over open banking, which is the authorization code. So you don't exchange money in cards. It's a message-based network. The money is done in bulk settlement afterwards and distributed. So the auth code is the crucial thing that we need to do. Now, it's possible, but in the standards of open banking that were written, they were very focused around the buyer. Whereas if you actually want a payment system to work, you need to focus it around the seller. Um, the seller needs paying because nobody's going to go out of a restaurant and say, oh, it's all right, don't worry about that, I'll go through shortly, that'll be fine. Uh, that, that's not going to happen. So the, the two big things there for me are the auth code, we need to replicate that in open banking, which I think is possible. And I know that there's some work from JROC to talk to Pay UK about what the faster payment scheme could do. I think it's scheme by scheme. Uh, and then we get the real elephant in the room which is reconciliation and apportionment. Cards are bulk. You get one big lump and then you get loads of metadata underneath it, which tells you what the transactions are. At the moment, and I appreciate people operate um, quasi-systems where they use EMI and they use different settlements to go and do it, but the cost of faster payments is a problem for somebody accepting a new value of them. And how do we give them an efficient way of doing that? How do we get the money onto the person's account, the apportionment, not the bank account, but on the customer account as well? I'm sorry, I probably diverted from your question there. Um, no, it's fine. It's fine. The, it's all, the it's end all interesting. point we get to here is, is that the reason Apple can make the journey so slick is because they know that the person is going to pay them immediately. That's the problem to solve. It's very rudimental language, but have I been paid is the biggest question that any business owner will ask. Because what no business owner will do is give a great slick experience to the consumer if they don't get paid. Yeah, and I think we see that again in car payments, right? I think from a from a let's let's take a, a furniture retailer that is taking card payments of an ATV of five hundred plus for a sofa or whatever it might be. Um, you know, from a settlement perspective, they might not get that money for a few days, but they've still got to release that sofa, whatever it might be. I think there's a an exposure time, all that kind of stuff. So I think it falls under that settlement piece, right? Um, and I think it comes quite closely to that, but we can we can cover that at the time. But from a, what do you think the key challenges are to open banking at the moment? And, you know, where do you see those challenges kind of being the most prominent? We may have covered them well, already slightly. Yeah, no, go on. No, there's three. The, the biggest one is performance. Mm -hmm. So if you take a card payment, it will work. What is it? Is it 99.9? Is the numbers now for uh, scheme response? Yep. I'm not even going to tell you what I know the open banking figures are that we see. There are one or two banks which are absolutely outstanding, which are brilliant. There are several banks still don't provide the correct narrative that comes back in, still don't give the uh, responses go back in. The performance of the banks is absolutely crucial. But I, I, I have to say there, I'm going to defend the banks because I'm a banker and I'm completely biased. I think they've done a bloody marvellous job. And I think it's so unfair that we kicked them as well when they were told to do something which has absolutely no commercial benefit for them whatsoever. The worst thing that happened in open banking was it's free. It should never have been free because free is always a substandard service. Every single time, anything you get that's free is always substandard. If it's a free park, it gets weeds and it gets broken. You know, if it's a free theme park, you know, that the, the rides are rubbish. It's a, it's a crazy analogy, but there needs to be a way that these banks can make money out of this because every single card payment that goes on a card they've issued, they've lost revenue. You know, every single credit they don't receive or every single flow of customer they don't get as well gives them less visibility of it. So, there's a difficult conversation there, and I think the conversation is there about how do we make this attractive for the banks. I personally think that lending is the key to that, but that's another story. 
That's a good answer. The second thing that needs to be addressed as well is, is the confirmation of payment. Um, back in the good old days of check clearing, there's a thing called certainty of fate, um, which is when you know the check cannot be returned. And I think what we need to do is, is we need to work out a way we can send these retailers not in the payment flow, completely separate, doing a little bit of work on it now, which is I am George Limited. And when my customer pays me, I get a message from the payment gateway or from infrastructure that says, hey, George just made a payment. Now, whether that's an open banking payment or just a payment from bank window or whatever, I want to get confirmation of that. And I want to know that that's there. I think the refund process is key, but I also think the refund process is all about sectors because if you're paying your tax and it's due, what do you need a refund for? If you're paying your council tax in arrears, and the payment was due, I'm, I'm struggling to say, yes, if it's consumer goods, which are going to have it as well, I think there's an issue there, but it can be tackled in many ways that, but bank performance for me and certainty of fate are the absolute two standouts. And I think there's a lot of politics around the first one, um, which I, I really feel strongly about as well. We've got to give these banks something back. They've spent billions on this. And at the moment, what they've got is sticky customers because of accountancy. Lots and lots of sticky customers. It's a hell of a play. Um, but, you know, um, we, we've got to give them a little bit back. And I think that funding at the point of transaction is really key, which is all driven by data. Yeah, and I think from, from you know, whilst, whilst keeping on that pricing element is, you know, straight up question, how, how do you think banks can commercialise this? Well, before I joined Open Banking, I won't mention his name, I went to meet somebody who I knew really, really well in a big bank. And I said, if I asked you one, I ask you a million dollar question, what do you want Open Banking to do? And he said, I want it to sell more of my products. Yet we've been hell-bent on disintermediating them. We've been absolutely hell-bent. So if we, if we look at sort of some of the things that are in there for the banks, I think what we've got to do is work out what the benefit is that hits both parties at the same time. It's quite a difficult thing. Classic example is cash flow. And there are great people like Zeta um, at Predictive Black. I mean, you know, there's, there's wonderful people out there that have built great cash flow products. Cash flow is the most important thing in a business, right? It is the most important element of it. We still have the same failure rate. I think it's as 1918 of businesses under two years old go bust. They all do fail for one reason. They've got out of cash. But cash also does a few other things. It helps you when you're in impairment. It helps you when you're in distress. But it also helps you when you need to lend if you want a capital purchase. Now, banks have got things called uh, pre-sanction limits and customers lending is still very much broker led in this country. So I'm probably talking about things now that you didn't expect as well, but the lending market is like 90% of the revenue in banking, the payments is 10%. So why the hell can't we work out a way that we can get these banks a visibility of their customers across the board so that they can work out and create a bit of competition in lending, cut the broker layer out because anybody that's got the word broker in front of their name is taking 10 pence in the middle. And what they're doing is they're introducing party A to party B, doing minimal work and getting paid for it. We have an enormous broker market in this country. It is massive. And we look at asset finance, we look at invoice discounting, we look at supply side finance, any kind of lending as well. We've got to make sure we do that for them. We've got to make sure that we as open banking both give them the visibility of the customer so that they can create better products, give better value and work it all out. And also we can aggregate maybe the flows of merchant acquiring, maybe the flows of other card payments of other payment streams so they get a better view of their lives. But I think the key to it is to increase lending for them or more efficient lending because banks don't want it pen. You know, Seagulls mm. is a great example. The, you know, you've got the Seagulls and CJRS scheme from HMRC, the business funding. 
Th those loans are all underwritten. I think they're underwritten by 85%, 15% held by the bank. I, th I think I might be wrong. So what a great example of how we could use open bank and say, hey, 70% of these can go back to being full, no problem loans. You know, then maybe they want to refinance. Maybe they want more. We've got good visibility of what we do. Doesn't sound difficult to me. No, I suppose it doesn't when you put it as simple as that, eh? <laughs> Pretty simple person, George, sorry. <laughs> Look, and I think one of the key things that I tend to see and uh, talked about around it is the whole fraud element. Do you think that that's a necessary evil? Do you think that that's something that will always be there regardless on what and how we take payments? You know, from a card perspective, you know, there's only so much biometrics we can put in place, you know, but for open banking, there is that biometric piece there. You know, you are opening your banking app. You are then going through that process. So do you think that fraud is a necessary evil and will always be there? Or do you think that open banking is one of those things that, you know what, it could probably tackle it in the best way possible? You know what, I'm just going to get my soapbox out for a minute. My biggest bugbear in this industry is that the banking industry is expected to solve fraud where we are the end of it. We are the act that creates the problem at the end of it. The, the fraud has taken place many, many weeks and months beforehand as well, and it drives me mental. And I've watched the great work that TSB have done. I think it's Adam Betridge and Aruna over there. And they've publicised that social media creates a great deal of fraud. I know that Pay UK having a look at what they were doing. I know that Ofcom were going to do some work on... Is it Ofcom? Ofcom are going to do some work on um, mandating some things for social media. Fraud is a really, really, really difficult subject because if somebody's been frauded, it doesn't matter what payment method they've got. It, it really doesn't make any difference, whether it's a pickpocket or whether it's a high-end... A gang of uh, cyber fraudsters that's going to go and get it as well. I, I do have an irritation. I believe we have multiple tools in the market now in banking that can solve a great deal of it. I think confirmation of payee is the most powerful anti-fraud tool I've ever seen in aggregation. So, you know, when you're on Facebook and somebody says there's a, a mobile phone for sale for 15 quid and you know full well that it's 600 quid, if you could check the bank account you're paying and make sure the name matches the person and matches the account, we could probably get rid of 50%, maybe 40%, maybe 60 uh, do do I think it's a problem? Fraud will never go away, whatever you do. And the proof in the pudding of that is do cars still get stolen? Because we can now secure buildings and secure things to the end of the earth. You know, there will always be theft. Open banking, I think, is better place to do that because you can use the attributes of the bank account not to identify somebody, but to confirm somebody. And I think there's a vast difference. So if you... Let me put it this way. Let's say you release confirmation of payee to Facebook, an AISP. And when you set up a Facebook account, you want to go selling, confirm who you are. Confirm who you are and make sure that that payment has to go to that bank account as well. It's not difficult. The problem is it's not a worldwide global solution. It's a, it's a parochial in-country solution, which I get that Facebook want to do. But the fact is Facebook and all the great other social media platforms are not picking anyone want live their customers' users and they want to make users as fast as they possibly can. I applaud what LinkedIn does, the way that they onboard people. There's very, very few rogue accounts on LinkedIn. It really is. I mean, it's owned by the same people. Um, but it is fraud a problem. Yes. Could we mitigate some of it using what we've got in our army? Absolutely, 100%. And it just needs the banking industry to open the taps a bit and allow the PISPs to use some products that they're limited from getting at the moment, um, which is a, a, you know, a, a bone of contention. Um, and, and get it out there and give it a go. You can't write policy until you've had practice. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very, very valuable point. And, you know, even 
for me, transferring payments, you know, yes, I still transfer people the odd fiver here and there for a coffee, or it might be for a, for a goals payment after some football or something like that. Just knowing that when I type their sort code and account number into my banking app and their name pops up and with a big, nice red, uh, red green tick saying, yep, these details match and the name matches, it, it fills me with security. I'm like, okay, well, cool. I'm happy to send my money to that account. And yeah, I think it's a really valuable point around the Facebook piece. I think a lot of people like buying secondhand things now due to the cost of living, all that kind of stuff. So the more that we can do that and equally have conversations around that, I think the the, the better that is for everyone. Um, but Everybody everybody loves a deal. It's part of yeah. the human psyche. It, yeah. you know, there's so much we could do, though, as well. That, you know, you, I can't stress enough how much this, this is something that I hate fraud, right? Can't stand it. Because I was brought up that if you took somebody else's things, then my dad would have hit me and it's gone with it. And it, it's something that runs through every every aspect of my life. I feel incredibly strongly about it as well. Banking's never been aggregated before because it never had open APIs that everybody could use before. So we look at the travel industry. If you booked on lastminute.com, it's actually 50 APIs behind the boards that do it. If you go to any of the travel sites, if you go to Amazon, it's an aggregation of thousands of sellers. If you go anywhere... Yet banking was isolated. We can now aggregate banking products in other industries. And I'm really frustrated that we're not doing it faster because I think there's a lot more we can do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think and moving on sharpish just because of time, what where do you, where do you see the open the future of open banking going? You know, do you ever do you ever think there'll be a day, God bless that there isn't, but it eventually ever replace his car do you think that that technology could potentially be even thought about at this stage or not no i did i, I, horses I, for, I mean yeah. look it's horses for courses isn't it we live in an age where we want instant gratification for everything you know we've mm. all got air fryers now why have we got an air fryer because it cooks faster that you know and, and the, the, we've all we all cook we all eat we've all got you know kettles that are very low energy and they go really fast as well and stuff and we're the same in our life but there is a really interesting point you make there as well. So everybody says that, you know, we've got this slick journey in Apple. We've got this great thing as well. So I, I revert, retort a question to the audience if anybody's look, anybody's fortunate enough for us to be listening to this, which is uh, when you get your salary paid and it arrives on the Thursday of the last Thursday of the month, do you worry if it doesn't? Yes, you do. We have absolutely no tolerance whatsoever and no ideology when we are getting paid or when we are paying because it's our money. And it's the only asset that we own through our lives that actually will tangibly affect our state of living daily. Our Wi-Fi will give the password to anybody. We'll give a key code to go and get in a lot. We'll say, oh, the code for this or use my card and pass if you want to go to the toilet. I'm sure people do that all the time as well. Go and ask somebody to give you your banking details to log on. No. So uh, I, I think the point I make that as well is, is we're much more cautious with our money as well. And that leads on to what the risk appetite is for the goods you buy. So when I'm buying a coffee, what's my worst case scenario? I'm going to lose three quid. But when I'm buying a car and paying for a car on a bank transfer of £15,000, I want to make sure that I give you a little bit more thought to it. And then when I'm buying my mortgage and I've got to provide you know, ID and do all those things as well, the appetite of risk for each transaction will determine the method that is used. And that will not change, in my opinion. Now, you just said, will it ever replace cards? Will it replace high value where there's a gap between fulfillment? Yes. And it's already doing it. There is billions and billions that has been taken off the uh, merchants at, at this moment in time by multiple sectors. The energy companies are just waking up. They're going, we're doing loads of work. We're going hell for leather. Yeah. 
<laughs> He's waiting for the but dog. My dog feels the same <laughs> way. Um, the, but when we get to face-to-face, you've got to be realistic. We're in a commercial world where you're doing this to get paid, George, and, and so am I. What, Visa and MasterCard, £476 billion of revenue a year? They're not going to roll over. But I'll have a bet with you. Um, I'll, I'll bet you um, um, a glass of wine or a pint of Guinness in, in, a, in a suitable establishment. I think merchant acquiring will become fixed price in certain places in the next couple of years. I think that there will be tariffs which have uh, tiers on them so that merchants can uh, adopt it a lot easier. I think that the card-based terminal of merchant acquiring changes it. I'm a desperate look forward to the day that um, open banking is offered as a payment method the same way as a card payment, the same way as a bank payment, the same way as you know QR or link can initiate a payment. I'm sorry, it's a long answer, but I want to give you the most important thing. We've always picked a method when we pay, but I believe what we'll do is we'll be driven by a message. So I want to get 20 quid off you, and I can send you a message, hey, George, you owe me 20 quid. And at that point, you'll determine whether you pay by card, you pay by bank, or maybe you pay by lending because you're short on cash. And that message will give us multiple options of payments, and that matches our risk appetite for transactions. I think the point around merchant pricing becoming fixed from an acquiring perspective, I think for high value is a very, very valid point, almost to a point where I'm not going to take your bet on a, on a Guinness. So I'll just, I'll do, we'll just go for a Guinness instead. We'll because just I think Guinness it's a, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just go for the Guinness anyway, because I think it's so true. You know, what merchant would want to pay 0 point whatever percentage of a 600 pound transaction for a furniture, we'll go back to furniture again, when they can ask their customer to pay potentially a more secure way for 20 or 30p as a transfer or what they would class as an instant bank transfer if that's how they want to pitch it to their consumers that's just logic yeah. right that's common it, sense it, <laughs> you've got you've got another big problem in the uk is all banking's free so you can get a current account for free you know gordon brown's basic bank account which has taken a few years to come fruition is a truly wonderful thing societally it's it's important as well payment why should i pay 0.4 percent of a payment or 0.2 percent of a payment when it's the same rails the same technology the same message it's just just arbitrage. So, so you know, maybe there is some thinking there. But if you go back to the origin of cards, you did it because there wasn't an effective way to pay people without cash when you're in front of them. And, and by the way, they are utterly brilliant. And I'm, I'm not criticised well, but maybe the, the the cartel, the monopoly, the advantageous situation that has existed as well. I think sharpening that mind as well helps stuff. But the card industry for me, if I look at what they've done in the travel industry, and I'm a massive advocate of the global distribution scheme and the way they aggregate, do I want a hotel room, a non-smoking room, do I want Wi-Fi, do I want a seat in the aisle? I can put it all in one booking on one payment and all the data goes to the relevant parties. Let's have more of that, please, because that's the answer. Yeah, yeah. I think look, this is this is not me, this is not me pitching acquired and our products and services to the listener, but from a, from a perspective, it's almost what we did with our hosted checkout product. You know, we created it in a way that we can offer whoever wants that hosted checkout. They can have Apple pay. They can have Google pay. They can have card. They can have buy, they can have buy now, pay later. They can have pay by bank. And it's a, it's a switch on or off in your back office, whichever ones you want to display, you can display as long as the device is compatible with that payment method. You know, I, I personally yeah. don't think that's very difficult. Well, you're just on method there as well, but I'm on about the data behind it. So if you mm. think about the card paint, a bank paint, we've got 18 characters in the reference field. If it's a chaps paint, we can do two lines of 30. I think if it's swift, we can do four lines of 30. Whereas in a card paint, we can do, what, 256 fields of 256 characters. We can put API based on it. That's what I want to see. So when I pay Harcross 
for my building supplies that I bought, I want to say here's £650.26 and that settles this statement. However, there were three bags of MOT that were crap. There was two pieces of wood that were broken and the hammer you sent me was split. Can you please notify that I have not paid these amount? Why not? Why can't I do that? You, you know, that the, the, the remittance is what has made cards valuable in the travel sector. And the card industry keeps on saying, well, you should accept cards for your invoices. No, that, that's just turkeys voting for not for Christmas. Mm. Um, it, it's with it. But I do believe that the value there is, is in that there are certain transactions that match a card payment. There are certain transactions that match an open banking payment. And there are certain transactions that still match paper when we've got a legal requirement to put things by the side of them. And I, I, I don't want to try and shove square pegs into round holes. I think there's plenty for everybody. I really do. Mm. Yeah, look, I think this has been a really interesting conversation. And um, like I say, next time you're in London, pop by the office and, you know, I, I just want to chew the fat even more because there's, there's plenty of people in this office surrounding me now that that would love to be a part of this conversation face to face. Um, and let's have a good discussion around it. But just to finish off, Simon, where can people get hold of you uh, and where can people kind of find you and have a chat with you should they want to off the back of this? The, the, the smart answer will be LinkedIn, wouldn't it? But I'd probably get told off for that kind of thing. So <laughs> I'm Simon Lyons. I am Chief Strategy Officer at OB Connect. Um, very, very proud and happy to be there and work with some great guys and girls um, who we have a good time as well. But um, the purpose of this is really, I'm more than grateful to be able to talk to you and thank you for the time as well. And if you want to find me, I'm sure you can. No worries at all, Simon. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Be sure.